Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. All right, it has been a while, but as I have mentioned twice already, we were doing a series on healing. We did a we had an actual healing service one Sunday that was not connected. It wasn't planned. It wasn't part of the message. Then the next week, I taught on miracles of healing. The week after that, uh, it was our healing covenant. week after that, it was uh, faith for healing. And then a sort of an extra message on faith, the faith Jesus looks for. That was about the centurion. And then uh, I think the last one uh, that I did was on the connection between forgiveness and healing. Then we had Christopher Alam in, then it was Palm Sunday, and then it was Easter, and now here we are, and I still have at least one more message, probably two, just because I would rather preach two shorter messages than one long one, but we'll see what happens. Uh, and I'm sure you notice that woven through every one of those messages in that series was one particular doctrinal point, which is simply that it is God's will to heal. This, I think, remains, uh, I could be wrong, but I think it's the biggest stumbling block for most people, uh, is, and I'm talking most people who believe in God, is, is it always God's will to heal? Does God want me to be healed? Or is there some higher purpose, mysterious purpose, that serves God's kingdom better? Uh, by me remaining sick or in pain. Now most, not all, but most of us are far enough along in our faith journey to understand that when we are in need of healing in our bodies, it is not a matter of convincing God to do something for us. It's a matter of us receiving it. Uh, and that's worth nailing down again because faith is not us getting God to do something. Faith is us being convinced that he has already done it. It's very easy, even though we know that, listen to what you're praying sometimes. What does your prayer sound like? Does it sound like you're trying to talk God into doing something, manipulate God into doing something, beg God to do something, twist his arm, or is it genuine thankfulness being expressed for his finished work, for what he has already made available to you, to us. Faith, the very word faith, is one of those broad terms that becomes vague in a lot of conversations just because of its broadness. The world uses the word faith as a synonym for religion. They talk about a person that they report, he was also a, a person of great faith. Uh, and it could be uh, nothing more than a man who goes to church, a person who goes to church, or, or a synagogue, or a mosque, or a temple for that matter. A uh, person that faith plays a great role in their lives. And they're just talking about religion. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean the Christian faith. And then we talk about, well, the Christian faith. We're not talking about faith like the Bible talks about it. They're just talking about a belief system. Or again, a religion. And then within Christianity, 
an awful lot of believers, and I, when I say the word believers, I'm using it to describe people who I believe are saved. They have acknowledged that the only way to salvation, the only connection to the kingdom of God that has been made available is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. So they're believers. But when we talk about faith, millions of people uh, believe that what that means is I trust God so perfectly and implicitly that I can accept everything life throws at me because there is nothing that comes into my life that can possibly be anything other than the will of God. Because my picture of God is so big and so right and so perfect, I know who God is. He is the creator. He is the only God. And therefore, if anything happens to me, including sickness, somehow it is God's will for my life. And my trust in God, my faith in God is so perfect that I will not question it. Now, I have to say on one level, that is admirable. I appreciate the strength of character that people have displayed living out that doctrine. I also have to say that I think that's a false doctrine. I think it is very, very hard to come to that conclusion when you read the Bible because it has to encompass everything. You cannot say that everything that happens in the world is God's will. Because sin is not God's will, right? I know we've talked about this. These things, again, they've got to be something that we, we instinctively think of, not for the sake of argument, but so that we ourselves are not deceived. So many, many people, millions of people down through the ages have come to the conclusion that God's word makes it abundantly clear that healing is his will. Not only is it his will, it's his nature. This is, how, this is one of the names that he uses to describe himself. I am the Lord, your healer. Jehovah Rapha. So first, today, what I want to do is look at a couple of passages of Scripture that are commonly used to argue against the idea that it is always God's will to heal. And then one passage where, uh, and we're probably not going to get to that one, so never mind. But I'm going to give you, ultimately, either today or next week, the answer to the question, why are some not healed? Haven't you always wondered? Now, first, turn to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4 beginning in verse 10. Now this is when God is speaking to Moses, calling him to go to Pharaoh and deliver, he's going to be used to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses is not jumping at the opportunity. And in verse 10 of chapter 4 of Exodus, then Moses said to the Lord, Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servants. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. 
Now, do you see why that's problematic for the healing crowd? If we're going to say it's always God's will that we be healed, and then God saying right here, well, sometimes I make people blind, sometimes I make them deaf, sometimes I make them dumb. Remember in John chapter 9, there was this sin connection that the disciples were making when Jesus healed the man born blind. Remember what his disciples asked him? Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus just, he practically dismissed the question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he heals the man, just to show him. This is, this is all about exhibiting, this is the Scott Mills translation, exhibiting the manifest will of the Father. Let's don't get into the theological origins of exactly how this guy lost his sight or why he was born blind. Let me show you what the will of God is for this man's life. And he heals him. Opens his eyes. I'm going to come back around to that for just a second, but it's a troubling thing to hear God say. You know, when Moses said, look, you're telling me to be a spokesman, to confront Pharaoh. This is, this is going to be nervous. Uh, it's nerve-wracking. And I sort of picture Moses stuttering before God. And when he says, your servant is not eloquent either before or since you've spoken to me. You can understand why I'd be stuttering now. I'm nervous. But I was like this before you even scared me. I've got this speech impediment. And then it looks like God said, you think I didn't know that? I gave you that speech impediment. I'm the one who makes people either be able to speak or not, seeing or blind, or deaf or dumb. And I still want to use you. But th is that really what he's saying? Now listen, this is a tender issue where I'm going with this. So cut me some slack if I don't state it perfectly. What we are talking about here in many cases is what we refer to as birth defects. Now listen, if we stand on Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You fashioned my inward parts. What do we do with that when someone is born with a disease, a disfigurement, a defect? If God makes everyone doesn't it stand to reason that he made some infirm? At least if they were born with an infirmity. Here's my answer to this. God created Adam and Eve. He created Adam out of the dust of the earth and he created Eve out of Adam. And one of the ways, you know, they were the original image bearers of God. They were made, male and female, in the image of God. And one of the ways, probably the most powerful way, mankind bears the image of God is in our ability to procreate. God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. This is, he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. And then he took some of that created matter and fashioned man. We can't do that. If you've ever heard a minister say, when your faith is at its 
highest potential, you can speak things into existence just like God. You are hearing a lie. We are not God. But we are image bearers of God, and we are not powerless. We, can, we certainly can, by the words of our mouth, change our circumstances, as long as what we are speaking is what God has already spoken, what he's told us to speak. But when God created man, he put in us that creative spark. So what happens when man and woman come together in the conjugal relationship? What happens? Life is created again. It's not, I don't believe, it's not God. It's clearly not. Listen, God, the Holy Spirit, caused Mary to become pregnant. That was a miracle. Now, I understand when we talk about the miracle of birth, what we, need, what we mean, that's a very, very powerful thing. But that's something that God created us to be able to do. It's not the Mormon concept of God creating living spirits and then placing them in human bodies. Life itself is procreated, this continual creation process of life between man and woman. What is God's part in that? Well, God designed us. Now, I'm not saying he has nothing to do I'm, with, with every birth. There is that, that, that same, that, this mysterious power of God and, and his, his, his life involved in that, in, in the pregnancies. But when we read, for instance, that he knit me together, we know there's something poetic about that, right? He's not in there inside the womb with knitting needles, literally knitting us together. All that to say, when there's a problem, when there's a defect, it's not because God made a mistake. Oh, was it knit one, pearl two, or pearl one, knit two? God doesn't forget. God doesn't make any mistakes. But what happens? Even after we are born, now what, what's, one of the concre- what's one of the bedrock truths of, of the Bible? That, well, what's one of the truths of the Bible? This bedrock truth of, of the pro-life movement, which we are, right? We are, we're not a movement. It's simply the pro-life truth is that life begins at conception. Life is a continuum. And we know scientifically now just how developed those babies are in the early, early days of the pregnancy, right? Almost everybody in here has heard this stuff. So, what do we say? You are no less a human being an hour before you're born than you are an hour after you're born. Or ten weeks before you're born or ten weeks after you're born. And anywhere along that continuum, and we acknowledge this much more readily after we are born, but since you've been born, you might have been born 100% healthy, but I'll bet since then you've gotten sick, you've gotten injured, maybe even seriously injured, maybe even disfigured. Life as a continuum, this can happen at any point, including in the womb. It's not God knitting you together and blessing you with a birth defect. It's an injury. It's damage. It's all part of the fall. It's part of the sin nature that has affected every facet of mankind's existence in terms of war, sickness, poverty, damage, hurts. And when it happens in the womb, it can result in what, again, we call birth defects. This isn't God made this person this way special. It was damage 
and it hurts. But I also want you to know that, for instance, I don't know if this, this, I made a note about this. I'm not sure this is where I'm supposed to talk about it, but I will. When Jesus healed the man born blind, there was something really a lot bigger behind that miracle than we often recognize. And this is something I shared years ago. I don't remember the last time I shared it. So uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and this is many years ago, but she worked uh, with the blind, and she did a lot of studying. She wasn't a doctor, but she did a lot of studying on blindness itself. And she pointed out that when somebody is born blind, that is a problem. If you go blind because of something that happens to your eyes, it's amazing how much progress the medical community has made in the last 10, 20, 30 years, what they can do to restore sight to blind eyes. Things they couldn't have imagined 50 or 100 years ago. But when you are born blind, there's a real problem. If your eye isn't working when you are born, and we all know this from uh, uh, when we talk about uh, uh, adolescence developing, you know, the reason they shouldn't be given driver's licenses until they're 24 is because, because your brain's not fully developed until then, right? And you all remember the, the last part of your brain to become fully developed is that frontal cortex where the decision-making and the risk assessment take place. Uh, that's why kid, kid, you can show them all the scary, this is what happens when you drink and drive, this is what happens when you text and drive, and they believe it, they're not denying it, but something in their brain is not there yet, and so they can't believe it could ever possibly happen to them, so they continue to do stupid stuff. We know this, right? That's how long, it, and this is physical development, this isn't learning, this is things falling into place in your brain. Same thing with the eyes, uh, or, or with sight. When a baby is born, he can't really see. She can't really see. There's light sensation, but it takes something to happen. In the womb, there's no light. But when light first strikes the back of the eye, it triggers a portion of brain development. Neural pathways, physical neural pathways, begin to grow from the back of the eye until they reach the back of the brain where the uh, visual cortex is. And then these things, these, these connections continue to get more complicated. This is a very quick process. I mean, it's not over the course of many, many years. It's over the course of days and weeks. And then sight is fully formed. But if light can't strike the back of the eyes, if there's something wrong with the eyes at birth, then those pathways are not formed. We're not just talking about something wrong with the eyes at that point. By the time this young man in John chapter 9, this man... Uh, he had a brain defect. When Jesus healed him, now the guy said, he opened my eyes. But Jesus did more than that. He did neurosurgery on the guy. He created neural pathways and instantly matured his visual cortex so that the guy could see. This was a creative miracle that took place when he healed this guy. All that to say, Jesus heals birth defects. Now it's easy to say. And we walk through this stuff, and I've, I've seen people, I've walked through it with people who never saw the manifestations. I just don't want you to lose faith. There's some things that are sometimes, e I had a talk with somebody once, and this is just where different people are, how they see different things. Would you, uh, do you find it easier to believe God to be healed of an injury or a disease? 
And for some reason, I found it easier to believe God for healing from a disease. He found it easier to believe God for recovery from an injury. But they're both biblical. Jesus put, put that dude's ear back on, didn't he? Malchus, that's an injury. He healed it. He heals all these things. Anyway. Uh, what does all this have to do with Exodus chapter 4? When God made men, when he made all people, he's talking about he is the designer, the creator of mankind. And if he's not saying, I, when he says, I made this deaf person, is different from saying, I made this person deaf. Hear me? I made this person who is blind is different from saying, I made this person blind. He's saying, if I made man, I can fix man. Everybody's got their favorite mechanic, but sometimes you come across a problem where even a good mechanic will say, you know what you need to do? You need to take it to the, the dealership. Why? Because there's where the manufacturer-trained mechanics are. I, we have a car that uh, I was, I was uh, checking the oil, because I, I was pretty convinced we have a, an oil leak, and so I've I'm checking it constantly, but it's got this dipstick that I hate. It's one of those cable, twisted cable dipsticks with the little, like, triple bulb at the end of it. You know what I'm talking about? It's just instead of having a, a little hole to look through to see if there's oil on it, you kind of got to, and if, and if the thing is dirty, uh, you can't, it's just hard to tell if you need oil or not. So I hate this dipstick, so I'm cleaning it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it really, really clean so I can see the oil on it, and, and I break off the end of this. The, the, just the bulb at the end of it. So I figured, ah, no problem. I, it, it's, it's still, only, you know, a quarter of an inch of this thing fell off. But then I couldn't get it back into the thing. It wouldn't go down for some reason. So I'm trying to file it down and smooth it, and I just couldn't get it to work. So, ah, so we need a new dipstick. Go to AutoZone. Go to Advanced Auto Parts. Well, the only one we have is is this, and it's more of a universal, but it's the, it's the one that comes up for that model. I said, well, that doesn't look like it. Well, it should work. Didn't come close to working. Wouldn't, I couldn't even get, the, get it in the, it wouldn't fit. It was one of those blade, I wish it fit because of the kind of dipstick I like. One of my favorite dipsticks. <laughs> I was looking at Rainy, not you, Beth. Anyway. So I go back into AutoZone, and they give me my money back. I said, where am I supposed to get one? I said, it's a dipstick. You're going to have to go to the dealership. Specialized item. But sometimes, this is what we're talking about. God says, don't worry. You think there's something wrong with you. I know every single detail about the design of mankind. You think your speech impediment is going to get you out of this? You think I didn't know that when I called you? Oh, Moses, here's what I want. Oh, that's right, you can't talk. Never mind. Now, we say this, uh, we use this in, in other contexts often, that uh, the grace of, uh, sorry, the will of God will not take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Or we say, if God calls you, he will equip you. Now, that you can apply this to giftings, you can apply this to money. If God said, if you know God told me to go to this place, and the only thing you're thinking, you can't just say, God, I can't afford it. 
if he's told you to go, you trust he will supply everything you need to get there. But it's the same thing with your health or any aspect of it. Here's Moses trying to beg off. I can't go to Pharaoh and, and say anything because I can't talk. And God's like, I made the tongue. I made man. I will be with your tongue. I will fix it. You will be able to speak. Now Moses still protested. This I'm getting a little bit off subject here. Moses continued to protest and said that, that God's anger was kindled against Moses. And he says, all right, your brother can talk, can't he? I'll speak to you, you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. This could have been all you, Moses. Now, I'll speak to you, and you will be like God to Aaron. And then Aaron will be like Moses to Pharaoh. He made, he, made there, he made provision there, but Moses could have just, I believe, received an instantaneous healing from his speech impediment. Anyway, God is simply, uh, in this statement, he's not saying he decides to blind some people and cause some people not to hear. He said, I made mankind, I can fix mankind. Now, another one. What about Paul's thorn? Paul was writing to the Corinthians about a tremendous vision someone had of heaven. Not just a vision. This man had been caught up in the spirit to actually get a glimpse to see things and hear things in heaven, in paradise. Now, practically every Bible scholar in the world believes that the man Paul is writing about is Paul. He just doesn't want to say, guess what happened to me? I've chased this particular rabbit before. And I believe God uses people's dreams and stories and experiences, but we can never put them on the same level as Scripture. You understand that, right? So I always want to be careful about throwing too much shade on somebody's story. But when I hear somebody talk about God took me to heaven and this is what I experienced, this is what I saw, write a whole book about it, deliver a whole message about it. I'm not saying they're making that up. I don't want to be accusatory like that. But I always do have to remember this scripture. This is one guy in the Bible who really did see heaven. And here was his story. Ready? I saw things and heard things that I don't even feel comfortable talking about. I don't even think it's lawful for me to talk about. Too wonderful. That's it. Who was the evangelist? Pastor Mike, you might remember this. I don't know if it was Moody. Somebody like him who said, the best thing in the world to get the gospel preached, to turn every Christian into an evangelist, is if every, and I'm paraphrasing here, if every Christian could spend five seconds in hell. Who's, anybody remember who said that or said something like that? Maybe it was 10 seconds in hell. If we could just see hell, nothing would do more to fire us up to share the gospel with our friends and neighbors in the world. And I see the truth in that. Paul, most effective evangelist in history, just got a glimpse of heaven and allowed him to put up with more suffering than you and I can even imagine. And I like that. That's the positive sign of that, size of that coin. You get a glimpse of heaven, you just a glimpse of how wonderful it is. And my message is not, I saw heaven, let me tell you what it looks like. It's just, you don't want to miss this. I, saw, I can't even tell you how good it was. You can't get left behind. 
So anyway, Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he tells them this story. And then he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, too many people, and even some Bible paraphrases, render that passage more or less like, uh, I saw things that made me feel spiritually superior to practically everybody else. So, to keep me from getting a big head, God made me sick. He gave me a disease to remind me that I need to depend on him. I was so sick, though, that I begged God to heal me. Three times. And all three times, God said no. So now, instead, I boast about my disease. Because the sicker I am, the more I can do for God. First of all, Let's start with this. What does it mean to be exalted above measure? Does it really mean getting a big head? Uh, Tony Cook, I believe, teaching on this passage. In fact, I'm, I'm 99% positive that he's teaching on this passage. He said, you know how one of the definitions of sin is to miss the mark? He said, one... Uh, uh, one way this, this phrase, exalted above measure, not just the word exalted, but exalted above measure, is, is translated somewhere as to go beyond the usual mark. Now, I don't know where that was. Tony Cook dug that up years ago. But there's also this. Uh, you can listen to this. I'm just two brief scriptures, so you can jot them down or read along. Uh, James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Or exalt you. First Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. Jesus himself said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the first question is this, is God for or against us being exalted? For or against us being lifted up? He is for that. He desires to see us exalted. God is not insecure. There is no amount of success or exaltation that you and I could possibly, conceivably ever experience that is going to threaten God's ultimate superiority. He, does, he wants to lift us up as high as we can go, as high as we can receive. To be exalted above measure is not about being prideful. It's about being lifted up, going so far beyond the usual mark that the impact you have on the world is much greater than that of the average person's. Bible quiz, history quiz. Did Paul do that? Did Paul write 
a huge chunk of the New Testament? Did he have more to, more to do with establishing the early church throughout Asia Minor and Europe than anybody else? Has he or has he not gone down in history as the single most important figure in Christianity other than Christ himself? Yes. Did Paul go beyond the usual mark? He went way beyond the usual mark. Was Paul's name and reputation and life exalted? Absolutely. So if God put a sickness or anything on Paul to keep him from being exalted, God failed miserably. So the thorn, first of all, uh, it's never called a disease. I know we see the word infirmity and we automatically think disease, but the New American Standard Bible, for instance, uh, translates it uh, weakness, and that's really what infirm means after all. Uh, if, we, if we look at the, you know, go, go to our concordances, we see that word infirmity. It often does, often is translated sickness, uh, but in this case, it's weakness. We don't know. We just don't know. It's mysterious. Suggested that it could be depression. Could be a disease. Maybe an eye disease. We won't go into that theory now. It could be anything. Just kidding. It tells us what it is. What was Paul's thorn? It's a demon. It's a messenger from Satan. Sent to buffet him. And that word is really hit with a closed fist. To punch Paul. Why? To keep him from doing what he wound up doing anyway. This was not God giving him the thorn. How did this thorn manifest itself though? Well right here, right in this passage, he talks about some of it. The persecutions and the distress. But he goes into more detail right before this. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, he's, he's, uh, he's talking about his ministry and he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. I'm in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, talking about beatings, right? Above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? This is a pretty detailed list, isn't it? He could have left out half of that and we would have gotten the idea. He could have just said, you understand what I've been through? I've been beat up a lot. I mean literally beat up a lot. I got whipped by the Jews. My own countrymen have chased me. Everywhere I go, I feel like I'm in danger. We'd get the idea then, wouldn't we? But no, he lists these things. Not only does he say, I was beaten, he says, this many times I got this many stripes. This many times this happened. Isn't it interesting with the, that with a list that detailed that sickness would not be on it? 
if that were part of what he was enduring for the gospel. Anyway, this is not God's plan. Remember, this is a messenger of Satan trying to stop Paul. And he couldn't because Paul discovered something, that when he was going through an unbearable trial, God bore that weight. He discovered the power and strength of God when he accepted that apart from that, he could do nothing. When Paul begged God to get this demon out of his life, God did not say, no. What did he say? My grace is sufficient. You acknowledge your personal weakness, but never forget the power of the grace of God. You want God to do something? Remember that he's done it. You have authority over evil spirits, over thorns. Declare that you walk in that authority, that you, a spirit-filled believer, have the very power, not just the authority, but the dunamis of God in you. And you will prevail over everything the devil throws at you to slow you down or stop you. Remember, why was the devil doing this to Paul? Number one, the devil is just hate. He hates you. He just hates you for who you are, hates you that, that you, are, you are inhabiting the world he desires to rule, that we are ruling and reigning. He hates God, and he wants to do, in terms of his mission, he wants to do everything he can to stop you from living the gospel, preaching the gospel, and bringing even, even one more person into the kingdom. And if he sees something powerful in you, if he sees dedication in you like he saw in Paul, he might personally assign a demon to you to buffet you and try to talk you out of it, to keep you from going beyond the usual mark. So when you're enduring a lot of these things, you can rejoice because God sees something in you and the devil sees something in you, but God is bigger. We can't say, oh Lord, I'm afraid of this, get this out of my life. He's like, I'm with you right through. When these burdens happen, when something that unbearable happens, Believe me, I'm the one that's going to be bearing the brunt of it. Even death itself, when it comes, will be like a shadow. Now, we might not get, we're clearly not going to get everywhere I want to get today. We need to be wrapping this up. So let me say this. I want to sum all of this up into two arguments so far and translate them into two reasons, really one reason, why people don't get healed. Argument one is that God has created people to be sick, blind, deaf, so clearly healing isn't for everyone. So some people don't get healed because, again, they are not convinced it's God's will to heal. And, the, and the, uh, there's also the argument that Paul himself asked God for a healing and didn't receive it. So some people don't get healed because clearly God uses sickness to make us more effective ministers and forces us to rely on him. Those are the two flawed arguments. The problem with both of these passages being used that way is simply bad teaching. People reading the scripture and teaching it wrong. And it's bad tradition. And people use these things, these scriptures, these two particularly, to, to what? To validate their own experiences. I prayed and didn't get healed. I guess I'm in good company because Paul prayed and he didn't get healed either. I'd be open to God opening my eyes, but 
God made me blind for a purpose. It's bad teaching. Neither of these arguments uh, can hold up under the weight of Scripture where it is expressly stated many times that God's blessing is healing, that he will put none of these diseases on us. Now, here's the thing. Interesting as that is, and I believe ultimately it is helpful, and praise the worship team, you can be coming up here. I have to admit that neither of these arguments and neither of these answers really addresses our problem. Because we want to know why those of us who believe in healing don't get healed. How many of you would just like a straightforward answer to that? See you next week. And bring somebody who needs to hear this answer. I believe you will find it liberating. Be encouraged. Stand up with me if you can. For now, let me remind you and encourage you to be uh, to rest in this truth. God is for you. He is for you in every way imaginable. I can't stress this enough. When we talk about God's mind being so much more sophisticated than ours, his, his, his thoughts are so much higher. They're not just barely higher than our thoughts. They're way higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. That doesn't mean that uh, you, can, you can take that, we should rest in that, that man, he sees it all, he knows it all, he's thought it all out, he's beyond us. It doesn't mean that well, you know, what seems evil to us might be good to God. He tells us what's good and evil. He makes us know what's good and evil. And what sickness and torturous pain for you might be good in the eyes of God if you could just see it from his perspective. No, it's not. How do I know that that's not? Because Jesus fought sickness. He healed everywhere he went. The austere and godly Christian author, C.S. Lewis, called that kind of thinking damned nonsense. And he meant that in the theological sense. God is for you, and that means he is for your healing. He is not for you growing to some higher plane of existence where you receive sickness as a blessing. Sickness is a result of the curse, of the fall. And he's redeemed us from that. We're redeemed from all of that. He wants you well. He wants you supplied. He wants you active and strong and energetic. Why? To do what? To live the gospel and preach the gospel. And there's a lot wrapped up in living the gospel. It means giving and serving and working and pouring yourself out. And it means enduring the stuff, a lot of the stuff that Paul endured. How's that even possible? Because his grace is sufficient. That sounds like a pious little thing to say, but once you understand what grace is, wow, it's more than sufficient. One of the worst arguments, we've already touched on it today, for living in sickness is the simple observation that if I am sick, it must be because it is God's will. If it wasn't God's will that I was sick, I wouldn't be sick because he's God. But as I asked earlier, is that the same with sin? 
it must be God's will that I sin, otherwise I wouldn't sin. And the big question for right now is, is that true of salvation? It must be God's will that some people go to hell, otherwise nobody would go to hell. And yet, it is expressly stated, he is not willing that any should perish. That's his will. But he's not going to force us into that decision. When Jesus died on the cross, that death paid the sin debt of everybody who ever lived and ever will live. But we can stand up and say, I don't receive that payment for me. I'll make my own way. Those are the ones who reject God. That's who goes to hell. Who goes to heaven? Those who say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, you didn't have to do it, but I sure couldn't do it myself. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God is for you. Are you for him? Do you need to make that decision today? Does anybody need to be saved? Does anybody need to surrender their life to the, to the Lord God and rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Do you need to personally make that decision for the first time? I'm going to ask you again in just a second. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your healing power, your healing word, the promises you've made, and for making your will clear to us. Not just about healing, not just about provision, but about our very salvation. We know, Lord, I know that you have died to save all mankind. And it's my prayer, and I know it's the prayer right now of every believer in this room, that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice here in the lobby online who is hearing this and realizing it for the first time, oh no, I've never confessed Christ as my Lord. That you would pierce their heart doing what only you can do and cause them to recognize their need for a Savior, cause them to recognize that that need has already been met in Christ Jesus and grant them the wisdom, the boldness, the humility to receive that free gift of eternal life now in Jesus' name. Once again, anybody need to make that decision today? Just raise your hand. It's just life and death. It's just heaven and hell. Don't you worry about embarrassment or anything else. Anybody up there? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you still need to make that decision, you just couldn't bring yourself to make it today. And I'm looking around. I think, just looking around, looks like most of the people I'm seeing, I know personally made that decision, but don't let that stop you from correcting me. Don't leave this, this, uh, this house today without letting me pray with you or at least talking to me about it. Amen. Praise and worship team. We got something to go out. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.